With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Rachel Held Evans, she wasn't a preacher, but she did preach. You wrote a blog post called Blessed Are the Uncool that just went viral. You probably got it on Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> That's so, like where well, it really blew up. I, I got it from several people. This is from an interview she did a few years back. The posts that really take off like that are when I've said something that a lot of people have been feeling, but they weren't really sure how to articulate. Rachel was evangelical. In her writing, it was all about changing what people thought about when they heard that word, evangelical. And I think what that post was about was, I was saying that even though I'm young and people think I want a big, cool show in church, that what I really want is just an authentic community of people where Jesus and his friends, who were uncool, would fit in. Because there's sort of this assumption that, oh, you're young, you're 30 or under, you must want, like, fog machines in church, and, like, if we do that, then the young people Lighters. will come. Yeah, and if we just, like, add a rock band and, and do a light show, then the young will come. And I, that's not really actually what I want. I don't have a problem with those things. What Rachel wanted was to reach out to a group of religious people, deeply religious people, people who may have felt the evangelical church had left them behind. They were gay or divorced, maybe they'd had an abortion. Online, Rachel became well-known enough that a lot of people simply referred to her by her initials, R-H-E. It's just an easier way, it, you know, spelling out Rachel Held Evans take, takes up how many characters on Twitter. <laughs> Ruth Graham writes about religion and culture for Slate. She's known Rachel for years. It does sort of show her... Fame, though, right? I mean, once you, you ascend to that level that you can either go by just your first name or, you know, the initials, that's the other real sign of that, you know, in a community, you're, you're very, very well known. But this community, Rachel's community, it's been in mourning. Because over the weekend, Rachel Held Evans died. At just 37, she'd been hospitalized with the flu. As I was thinking about this, you know, Thinking about hashtags and press clips like does not capture just the emotional tenor of the response. She helped elevate so many other women, particularly women of color, LGBTQ writers, just people who usually aren't invited onto the main stage in a lot of Christian spaces. Um, an incredible number of ordained women who said, you know, I wouldn't be doing this work without her. It, it just a lot of grief over the weekend. Ruth says it's worth understanding the full impact of Rachel Held Evans. Because she represented this movement, a change in how some Christians see themselves. It's a change that's still happening, beginning to play out not just in churches, but in the political sphere, where Christians are no longer assumed to be conservative. I think Buttigieg has probably gotten the most attention for it. But Elizabeth Warren talks about being a Sunday school teacher. And, you know, these are people in the primary talking to Democratic voters in this language because so many people are disillusioned with the vision of evangelicalism from the 80s and 90s. 
And it sounds like Rachel Held Evans was really a person who made that possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, her her writing just made clear there was space for that. Today on the show, a tribute. But more than that, a look at what Rachel Held Evans built and what her legacy means for the rest of us. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex, but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen. So Rachel Held Evans, she was raised evangelical in the 1980s, the 1990s. What did that mean? Rachel was raised, you know, she she was born in Alabama and moved to Tennessee. And yeah, on paper, we had really similar biographies. We, we were almost the same age, both raised in deeply evangelical communities, graduated from evangelical colleges. White evangelicalism in the 80s and 90s, this is focus on the family. This is Jerry Falwell's moral majority. This is Ralph Reed's Christian coalition. It was just the height of this idea, pretty unquestioned in a lot of Christian spaces, that if you're a Christian, the things that are important to you are to, you know, oppose all abortion rights. You want prayer in public schools. You need to oppose gay rights. I think of it as the era of, like, big Christianity, like people on TV, big hair, just big Yeah, I think that's a really, really good description of it. And sort of a monoculture, you know, within, it's sort of like, if you're a Christian, this is what it looks like. Yeah, she writes about how she was quoted in a Christianity Today article as a teenager talking about how much she loved her abstinence-based sex ed, right? Yeah, exactly. She was, I think in high school, she was like the president of the Bible club, literally. (laughs) She's, She's really funny about that. She says like she was just desperate to evangelize her peers, but she was in this community that was already like completely Christian. And it was like hard to find people who were, you know, unreached. Um, And the idea was that as an evangelical, you're supposed to recruit more people, right? You're supposed to go out into the world and get more people into the fold. Right, exactly. And that's seen as, you know, that's a compassionate thing to do because belief in, you know, a very specific kind of belief in Jesus Christ is the only way to assure yourself a spot in heaven. And so, you know, if you care for other people, you want them to experience heaven too. And it, it goes hand in hand with a belief that evangelical Christianity is the only way to get to heaven. 
So what happened that made her begin to question all of this? Was there a moment? I mean, she went to a Christian conservative college, and it seems like that's really where her views began to become different. Yeah, definitely. I think that was the beginning for it, like it is for a lot of people. That's that's one way is the like ultra fundamentalists are right. Don't send your kids to college. Um, she writes about sort of snapping at one point during a campaign in Tennessee for a state ban on same-sex marriage. This is in the early 2000s, and it passed overwhelmingly. And she just writes about being disillusioned by looking around, seeing all the Christians around her supporting that and thinking like, what does this have to do with the love of Jesus Christ? Um, and that being, I think, one of a couple turning points, not necessarily one. It wasn't like waking up in the morning and like seeing the world in a completely new way, but just gradually awakening to the ways in which contemporary evangelicalism does not look loving. How did she begin to build a following around her? Because she was just sort of a regular woman at a Christian college, and then she began blogging. And how did she sort of take off? She, she was a journalist, I think was her first job after college. And she was like also a humor columnist. And then she started a blog in 2008, built a following. Her first book was a memoir um, about growing up in this town. Her, her hometown was Dayton, Tennessee, which is where the Scopes monkey trial took place in 1925. It's funny, her first book was... Yeah, it was called uh, Evolving in Monkey Town. And I guess the idea is she lives in the hometown of the Scopes Monkey Trial, which was... I, I guess we should explain it for people who might not know. Yeah, this was the big trial about whether or not evolution could be taught in public schools. Um, so she wrote about growing up in this town and kind of evolving out of that form of faith. Her second book, um, The Year of Biblical Womanhood... It was such a fun, funny project. That's actually what made me first um, write about her for Slate. She spent a year following all of the Bible's strictures for women. So she would camp out in her yard to follow Levitical rules for menstruation. She at one point stood out by the highway. I'm trying to remember what verse this would have been, but holding a sign that said, like, I love Dan um, to sort of honor her husband and like praise him in the public square. So she did it in this really cheeky fun way. Um, but of course, her point, which she also, you know, wrote about beautifully in the book was that to say, like, here is exactly what it means to be a biblical woman is almost a meaningless thing to say, because no one follows the Bible in this way. Um, and yeah, she just built really a remarkable following over the years. She, she wrote four books. Something that struck me, <laughs> her views kept evolving in public. Like she began expressing herself as a sort of evangelical who was questioning things. And then she kept interrogating things and kept interrogating like even her own beliefs. Like for a while, she was sort of uncomfortable with the word feminist. And then by a few years later, she had embraced it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one thing that people, her readers really identified with, that she was on a journey. You know, she wasn't sort of standing on a stage saying, like, here's exactly what you need to believe. She was she was writing about her own process, her own learning. You know, she was not at all afraid to change her mind or admit she was wrong. And eventually, by 2014, you know, she came out and said, I'm not an evangelical anymore. Like, I don't define myself by that word anymore. She started attending an Episcopal church. That must have been 
a major deal for her fans and followers when she came out and said, I'm not an evangelical after spending years within the the evangelical community trying to make some change. It was. I mean, it definitely, you know, made headlines within the certain sphere. And, you know, I have to say it was impressive to me at the time because that was a big risk for her career-wise because you always, you know, you know that you can have a voice when you say, like, I'm the evangelical who is also, you know, for racial justice or for LGBTQ rights and all these things. When you step outside, you know, you lose a little bit of that heft within the community. And she was able to risk that or willing to risk that just because she was a writer who told the truth. And, you know, that's where she was on her journey. So it seems to me like evangelicals have this power in the American electorate. And it's grown and it's grown. And it seems like Rachel Held Evans was beginning to embrace that in her last few years of life. Like she wrote this essay about Hillary Clinton and it was called I'm pro-life. Here's why I'm supporting Hillary Clinton, which is really a shot across the bow. Was she trying to move the political needle and not just the spiritual needle? Yes, I think she was trying to be a public face for the kind of Christian who would vote for Hillary Clinton and make clear we're out here, (laughs) you know, we're out here and we vote and we're grappling with this stuff and we take life issues seriously. It's partly sort of a PR thing almost. I hate to use that term. And then I think also to sort of show other Christians like, look, here's a way, you know, here's a way to take life seriously, to grapple seriously with abortion. Well, she seems to be making this argument that there's a net life gain from having a pro-choice president or having a president like Hillary Clinton, because that's really what she was arguing about. She was saying, you know, if you look at Barack Obama, you know, the abortion rate has gone down under him and there are more social services. So the argument seemed to be if you're pro-life and like the big the big definition of life. There's more life in this candidate. Yeah, exactly. And and that the stat about abortion going down under Obama is so powerful. I mean, because that's not even that's saying, listen, if you care not just about life in this kind of, you know, possibly fuzzy, larger sense, but literally if you care about the abortion rate, if you care about the teen pregnancy rate, like we can we can do things with that. You know, the abstinence education does not work. If you view abortion as a tragedy, there's so many ways to come at it that are both smarter and more effective than this just draconian, you know, the punitive Republican approach. And when this article came out, I think the argument, it sounded really novel. But I wonder how in the following years, you, as an observer of the evangelical community and the religious community and the political community, has sort of seen these ideas ripple outwards. I think it's becoming more and more, especially with the election of Trump, there were a lot of evangelicals who were vocally opposed to that and prominent people. And I think that very fact, um, I don't want to take away from the fact that huge swaths of white evangelicals voted for and continue to support Trump. So I don't want to dismiss that. But there is also a lot of public, vocal evangelical opposition to Trump. This Republican isn't working, you know, to advance our agenda. He's not, you know, he's no friend of Christians, basically. And that has sort of opened up a lot of bigger questions about 
what it does mean to vote as a Christian. And I feel like I saw the sort of same arguments coming out, you know, when you saw Beto O'Rourke running in Texas, you had evangelicals who lived in border areas talking about I'm pro-life and I can't be in favor of the immigration policy that I'm seeing. And that's why I'm supporting Beto O'Rourke. And I feel like you also see it when you look at Pete Buttigieg, who talks about his Christianity and what it means as a gay man. And I do feel like that seed was sort of planted in 2016 with thinking like this from Rachel Held Evans. Yeah, absolutely. It was her and, you know, other writers like her who really laid the groundwork um, for that to flower in this moment. And yes, you see Pete Buttigieg saying his marriage has made his faith stronger. You know, Kirsten Gillibrand, I think, talks about, you know, it being a Bible study that got her interested in public service. So that overlap of Christianity and progressive values and really talking about progressive values flowing from Christian faith is something that has not always seemed super comfortable, I think, to a lot of people. Yeah, I feel like for so long we've talked about evangelicals as this block who always do a certain thing. And I wonder if that idea is changing, like the Trump evangelical is a different flavor than the kind of evangelical who might swing towards Beto or swing towards Buttigieg. I think that is absolutely true. I mean, one of the things is when you look at the Republican primary in 2016 is how unpopular Trump was among white evangelicals who actually go to church. So the the, the biggest block for Trump in the primary was evangelicals who did not go to church. So sort of, you know, people who identified with white evangelicalism in some ways, but didn't actually practice it, you know, who might not read the Bible, weren't plugged into a church. But, you know, they sort of know, like, well, I'm on the team of people who does that and who is like known for these kinds of things. And I want to go back to this sort of 1950s, like white church in the town square kind of America. And so therefore, like, yeah, I'm an evangelical. You know, one thing I think that's often misunderstood about evangelicalism is there's this really huge gulf between kind of D.C. political evangelicalism, which right now is Trump evangelicalism, and evangelicalism as it's practiced by actual people, like the people who are in the pews week after week. And there's, of course, there's a reason that reporters are interested in the political form of it, because those are the people influencing policy and conflating Christian belief with voting Republican and influencing so many Republican voters. But if you really look at what's happening in churches and what denominations are working on and what's being talked about in conferences and, you know, yard signs and the books that are sold and all of that, it's just it's no longer really about that 80s slate of topics. It's interesting because in her death, you could see these ruptures in how people saw her. Like I read one long, long blog post by a prominent biblical scholar about her and clearly someone who disagreed with her. And I was struck by the fact that he kept repeating in what he wrote. Well, I haven't read any of her work, but here's what I think was going on with Rachel Held Evans. And it it just struck me. I was like, this is really interesting. There's this divide. She was clearly trying to reach across it and have a conversation And there were a lot of people on the other end of that divide who just didn't want to reach back. I mean, even the fact that that exists shows that she was read by everyone and taken seriously by everyone. And that's in part because she did engage with everyone. Um, So she certainly got 
pushback from conservative evangelicals who were really uncomfortable with a lot of what she said. I think, you know, uncomfortable with this sort of radical welcome, like this this different way she, this different vision she saw for the church. But they also did see her as someone who understood them, understood the language. She got the big ideas. She understood, you know, the, the value system. And she was making arguments with, you know, that it would be to their peril not to engage with directly because she spoke to so many people who were you know, hanging on by just a thread to the traditional evangelical church, or they had left, um, but maybe were open to coming back in some form. So, you know, she always got pushback. I will, I will say that, and that includes after her death. But she also was really respected. It seems to me that the fundamental disagreement with her from people who are still deeply involved with the evangelical church is this belief that Christianity needs rules, and that. Traditional evangelicals think that Christianity almost has to keep people out or shame people in order to kind of keep its soul, and that Rachel really disagreed with that. Is that a fair way to put it? I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, there's a point at which we can fetishize being right and getting, you know, crossing all of the theological T's and dotting all of the I's. And in the meantime, this sort of, yeah, obsession with the rules and obsession with getting all of that stuff right just leaves so many people out and leaves so many people hurt and alienated and grieving and not welcome. And Rachel just represents the idea that you don't have to set aside your heart or your brain to still be a Christian. Um, She just believed everyone was welcome at the table. All right, Ruth, thank you so much for telling us a little bit more. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Ruth Graham is a writer at Slate. All right, that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and it's produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Anna Martin. All right, going into the weekend, a couple favors to ask you. First of all, go over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. It helps other folks find the show, and that means a lot to us. If you've already done it, thanks a lot. And you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. It's basically like looking at a news ticker inside my brain. So follow me. Have a great weekend. Talk to you Monday. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.